continuing on in the Belgic Confession, it's in the back of your uh, Psalter hymnal on page 853. Page 853, we're uh, looking at Article 35 on the Sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And we'll spend two weeks on this article. It's quite long. Um, so tonight I'll read oh, about two-thirds of it, and then next week we'll uh, finish it off. On page 853. We believe and confess that our Savior Jesus Christ has ordained and instituted the sacrament of the Holy Supper to nourish and sustain those who are already born and engrafted into his family, his church. Now those who are born again have two lives in them. The one is physical and temporal. They have it from the moment of their first birth, and it is common to all. The other is spiritual and heavenly and is given them in their second birth. It comes through the word of the gospel and in the communion of the body of Christ. And this life is common to God's elect only. Thus, to support the physical and earthly life, God has prescribed for us an appropriate earthly and material bread, which is common to all, as life itself also is. But to maintain the spiritually and heavenly life that belongs to believers, he has sent a living bread that came down from heaven, namely Jesus Christ who nourishes and maintains the spiritual life of believers when eaten, that is, when appropriated and received spiritually by faith. To represent to us this spiritually and heavenly bread, Christ has instituted an earthly and visible bread as the sacrament of his body, and wine as the sacrament of his blood. He did this to testify to us that just as truly as we take and hold the sacraments in our hands and eat and drink it in our mouths, by which our life has been sustained, so truly we receive into our souls for our spiritual life the true body and true blood of Christ, our only Savior. We receive these by faith, which is the hand and mouth of our souls. Now it is certain that Jesus Christ did not prescribe his sacraments for us in vain, since he works in us all he represents by these holy signs, although the manner in which he does it goes beyond our understanding and is uncomprehensible to us, just as the operation of God's Spirit is hidden and incomprehensible. Yet, we do not go wrong when we say that what is eaten is Christ's own natural body, and what is drunk is his own blood, but the manner in which we eat it is not by the mouth, but by the Spirit, through faith. In that way, Jesus Christ remains always seated at the right hand of God the Father in heaven, but he never refrains on that account to communicate himself to us through faith. This banquet is a spiritual table at which Christ communicates himself to us with all his benefits. At that table, he makes us enjoy himself as much as the merits of his suffering and death as he nourishes, strengthens, and comforts our poor desolate souls by the eating of his flesh and relieves and renews them by the drinking of his blood stop there tonight. Our scripture reading comes from the Gospel of John. 
John chapter 6. I'll read John 6, verses 25 to 40, and then um, skip over to verses 53 to 59. Now, this is the chapter. What has just happened is that Jesus has um, uh, fed 5,000 people, so now these crowds of people are, are searching for him, and verse 25 is where they find him again. So, uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, you were looking for me, not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? God, or Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, what miraculous sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our fathers, forefathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, it's not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven. But it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, from now on, give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and who believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Then over to verse 53. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your forefathers ate manna and died, but he who feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. This is the word of the Lord. I remember many things about my late grandma, Hochhalter. I remember her stubbornness, her persistence, 
her curly white hair, even the seashell-shaped soap she always had in the bathroom. But the thing I remember most about Grandma Holkalter is the German dumpling feast she would make for my family whenever we visited. Grandma would boil potatoes with Crisco and water, and she'd leave the water in the pot for us to use like gravy. And she would roast a chunk of pork. It was always a cut with a little too much fat. You're never sure if you're eating meat or fat. But the star of the meal were these little rolls of dough that were fried in shallow, salty water until the bottoms of the rolls got nice and crispy and brown and the tops of the rolls were soft and chewy. And Grandma would serve all this up with a side of bright purple beets that no one would ever eat. Now, she died probably 15 years ago now, so now it's my mom who makes the meal, beets and everything. But we don't eat German dumplings without thinking of Grandma. I still see her bent over the frying pans, poking at the dumplings with a fork. I still see her sitting and smiling at the table as we inhaled the dumplings and had contests to see who could eat the most. The food she served us nourished our bodies, of course. But there's another sense in which this meal, whenever we eat it now in her absence, nourishes us in a different way. Our memories of her are stirred. And we feel a continuity with the past, even a sense of communion with her and the rest of our Hochhalter family. Now, I suppose this, or food in general, has this effect on more people than just my family. The smells and tastes and textures of a specific meal can transport us to a different time and place. Cinnamon and nutmeg may bring you back to Thanksgiving meals shared with family or friends. Or the smell and taste of almond cake or banquette may be loaded with special significance for you, if you're Dutch especially. For others, the smell of a slow-cooked roast in the oven or freshly baked bread or simmering curry might bring you back to a different place. Make you feel like you're in the company of specific people. Now, food and eating has the potential of engaging all of our senses with the effect that it stirs our memories. It gives us a continuity with the past, even a kind of communion with people who may be far away. And still, without taking away any of that loaded significance, in a very basic sense, food nourishes our bodies in the present tense. How appropriate, then, that our Lord would ordain and institute a meal as the primary way of nourishing and sustaining his people. In one sense, when we eat the bread and drink the wine or the juice, we remember Christ's words to his disciples in that upper room. But it's a particular kind of remembering. The word theologians use to describe the kind of remembering that occurs in the Lord's Supper is anamnesis. It means to remember as if you are there. It's the same kind of remembering that happens whenever I bite into a German dumpling. I feel like I'm 10 years old again back in my grandma's condo next to my fidgety little brother around her dinner table. It's anamnesis, to remember as if something is happening in the present tense. 
there is an eventfulness to this kind of remembering. We may as well be reclining next to Jesus and his other disciples at the table. And at the same time, without taking away the significance of the act of remembering, there is a very basic sense in which this, this sacrament nourishes us in the present tense. In order to understand how the sacrament nourishes us in the present tense, Guido de Bray, in our confession, makes a distinction between two lives that people have, or that we have. One is physical and temporal, he writes, and this is common to everyone. But for those people who have been born again, there is a second life in us. Neil Planiga offers a helpful explanation of the Belgic Confession's use of this two-lives imagery. He writes, after birth, everyone's life is supported by nourishment. Babies are typically nursed or nourished by their mothers. So when we're born again, we need to be nursed again. Calvin says that the church is a mother to give us birth and to nourish us. The new life is begun or effected by the preaching of the gospel. And after that, it's sustained by these life-supporting gifts of Christ. Planiga goes on, the communion, communion elements do not merely symbolize the strengthening of faith. For the person who has any faith at all, these elements actually make faith stronger. The faith which may be slipping or wobbling is secured and stabilized. In other words, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, it is not mere psychological remembering, nor is it merely symbolic. The Reformed conviction is that something is actually happening. In 2007, my family traveled to Florida for my mom's graduation ceremony. She was a student at the Institute for Worship Studies. So the day before the ceremony, my younger brothers got news that one of their best friends, Kyle, had died in a car accident. So they were distraught. I mean, they felt hopeless and helpless. They were so far away from their friends. They felt like Jesus was absent and their faith was slipping. Like, why, why would something like this happen? But they came with the rest of the family to the graduation ceremony. And being the Institute for Worship Studies, the ceremony was really more of a worship service, complete with the Lord's Supper. So when it came time for us to go to the front and to receive a wafer and a sip of wine, my brothers ran out of the sanctuary in tears instead. And my dad went after them. And in the humid Florida summer evening, he told them, come back with me, we'll all go up together. Maybe he was sensing that this meal would be a place where they would be nourished. Well, the younger of the two, Matthew, went back with my dad, and they walked toward the front of the church with my dad's arm on Matthew's shoulder, waiting for their turn, and they knelt down on the bench next to each other. This is Christ's body given for you. This is Christ's blood shed for you, the minister told Matthew. And as truly as Matthew's physical body was sustained by the physical wafer and wine, so too his spiritual life was sustained and his faith was nourished by the true presence of the risen Lord in this meal. When his faith was wobbling and slipping, the risen Lord, the bread of life, 
drew near to him in the bread and the wine of communion. And Matthew told me later that he remembers this was a really powerful, positive experience of Christ's presence. But he said he couldn't quite articulate what it was at the time. But it was not mere psychological remembering, nor was it merely symbolic. Something actually happened in that meal. Still, what exactly happened or how exactly it is that our faith is nourished by the bread of life and the sacrament or how exactly it is that Christ communicates himself to us through the sacrament, neither Debray nor John Calvin could ever really articulate. Debray and Calvin believed heartily that this supper both points to but also thickens our union with Christ, but they could not explain it. These Reformed believers characteristically confess humility and talk about mystery. The confession says that the manner in which he does it, that is the manner in which Christ works in us through the sacrament, goes beyond our understanding and is uncomprehensible to us, just as the operation of God's spirit is hidden and incomprehensible. But the confession continues, still we do not go wrong when we say that what is eaten is Christ's own natural body and what is drunk is his own blood. But the manner in which we eat it is not by the mouth, but by the spirit through faith. Now I would not be at all surprised if this language catches some of us a bit off guard. When I was a student at Calvin Seminary, one of our theology professors, Ron Feenstra, started out his lecture on the Lord's Supper with this article from the Belgic Confession. Well, he didn't tell us that it was the Belgic Confession, and most of us had not really read or studied it very closely at that point. So the first slide of his PowerPoint included the part of the confession where it says that we truly receive into our souls for our spiritual life the true body and blood of Christ. I think he also included the part a few paragraphs later where it says that we don't go wrong when we say that what is eaten is Christ's own physical body or true body and blood of Christ. Uh, Dr. Feenstra read these words out loud and he asked us what we thought. He didn't tell us where the words came from. He just asked if we thought it was right. Is this what reformed folks believe about the Lord's Supper? And the nearly unanimous decision was that no, <laughs> This is not what the CRC believes about the Lord's Supper. Now, it sounded, maybe it sounded um, too Catholic or something to us. I'm not really sure exactly what it was. So you can imagine our surprise, even our embarrassment, when he told us that, yes, in fact, this is what we confess to be true about the Lord's Supper. And in fact, this is binding on any of you who would wish to become office bearers in this denomination. So the Reformed conviction about the Lord's Supper is that something happens when we eat. Somehow, Christ, the bread of life himself, is made available to us in this meal. Our faith is nourished and strengthened by the bread of life. We do indeed receive the very body and blood of Christ. But that does not mean that somehow the elements become Christ's body and blood. Debray clarifies, 
that just like we open our mouths to receive nourishment for our physical bodies, our faith is the hand and the mouth of our souls. And so the manner in which we eat the body and blood of Christ is not by our mouths when we pick up the piece of bread and dip it in the juice, but we eat it by God's mysterious working through his spirit, by faith. The sacrament, the physical act of participating in the Lord's Supper, is a testimony to the reality of the spirit's working. It's an assurance that the nourishment we receive from the living bread is as real, as effective, as the nourishment our bodies receive from the bread and the wine. So far, this article is really quite neat. It's a tidy little package. It reflects the language of Jesus from John 6 when he talks about eating and drinking his body and blood, but then it also kind of sanitizes it a bit or spiritualizes it a bit. I guess that's appropriate. It's explaining the metaphor. But what's interesting to me is that when Jesus talks about eating and drinking his blood in John 6, he does not back away from the intentionally vivid language. If anything, he makes it more intense, more vivid, maybe even more gross than it already was. Up until verse 54 that we read Jesus, when he talks about eating, he's using the ordinary Greek word for eating, phagain, if you're interested. But then in verse 4, in reaction to a question posed to him by the crowd, Jesus uses a different, a lesser used verb for eating, trogain. This appears to have carried with it the connotation of chewing with your mouth open. The image Jesus presents is like a cow chewing his cud or a little kid chomping on jelly beans with his mouth wide open. That's what Jesus tells the people to do with his own body and blood. Jesus seems to be purposely exaggerating the yuck factor here. If his language before was vaguely cannibalistic, he doesn't seem too concerned to tone it down to make it more friendly or, I don't know, palatable. He's already turned some people off with his language. Some people have already walked away. He doesn't seem too concerned about that. He doesn't tone down his message or explain that it's a metaphor, kind of like our confession. And the preacher Scott Jose suggests that this is because what Jesus is talking about here is really a matter of life and death. Jose writes, to have any life worth talking about, you really do need to enter into the life of the Father through the Son. The topic at hand could not really be more extreme. God's offering to us in this meal could not really be more extreme. So Jesus' extreme has exaggerated language it's actually perfectly appropriate. It's our more tame theological systems and spiritualized language that may actually be the less fitting language for the occasion. Many weeks when we come to the Lord's Supper, when we take, eat, remember, and believe, our thoughts are too small. 
If Jesus' extreme and vivid words in John 6 are any indication, it would be extremely difficult to exaggerate what is offered to us in the meal. Our imaginations are not big enough. Our expectations of it are too trivial. What Jesus offers us is nothing short of access to the life of the triune God. In this meal, we are mysteriously joined to the creator of the life of the whole cosmos. It's this very triune God who gives and sustains all life in the whole universe. There cannot be life apart from God's own self. So this meal is God's nourishment for us until the day when, like Jesus repeats again and again throughout John 6, he will raise us up on the last day, when all of creation is liberated from its bondage to decay. This is God's nourishment, God's provision for us, his own people, on this journey until that day. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord God, we are humbled by your grace extended to us in Jesus, the bread of life. We are thankful for the work of the Spirit who applies Jesus' works in our lives to nourish and sustain our faith. Give us eyes to see the scale of your promises extended to us in your holy sacraments. And may our celebration of these sacraments move us to more fervent love of you and our neighbors. We pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen.